Hi friends, my name is Ryan Cagle and you're listening to the podcast formerly known as Lessons from Dead Guys. Okay, so really, we're not changing the name, (laughs) but you may be wondering what's up. So let me tell you. First, um, just to get this out of the way, on a personal level, the term guys has always been a gender-neutral term in my day-to-day vernacular. But I did wrestle with it a lot um, because I didn't want people to think that this was just another podcast for, you know, white dudes, right? Which, because there's plenty of those, enough of those. And so I didn't want people to think there was just another podcast about, you know, theologians that are, you know, male theologians and specifically white male theologians, which tends to be a running theme in the world of podcast and theology. But so I wrestle with it. But the idea of guys has always been just this general neutral term in my day-to-day use. And if you listen to the show, you know that I've been highly influenced by several female voices, voices ranging from St. Catherine of Siena to Dorothy Day. So guys has always referred to both women and men in, in regards to this podcast. But as I was dreaming up the, the episodes for the remainder of season three, I kept coming back to Easter morning. I kept coming back and thinking about how it was Mary Magdalene who first laid eyes on the risen Lord. And that it was Mary who was first commissioned as an apostle of the resurrection. And it was Mary who first preached the good news that death had been laid to waste in the body, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So in hopes of honoring Mary and all the women that came after her in church history, I decided that what better time than the season of Easter? Well, hold up. Yes, the season of Easter. Right? For those of you that are not very liturgically minded or been a part of the liturgical traditions, Easter is more than one day a year. It's a 50-day season of feasting, a celebration of the risen Lord. And so like I was saying, what better time than the season of Easter when the first person to lay eyes on God was a woman, the first person to preach the gospel was a woman, than to really focus in on honoring the women who have shaped not only my personal faith, but the church through history. This idea came with a few challenges, though, one being that there are so many influential female voices in church history. I mean, I could literally change the name to Lessons from Dead Gals and never change it back, and for here till Kingdom Come probably continue to talk about the work, life, words, and beauty, and depth that these women have provided for us, and these paths that they've walked. Um without ever talking about another male voice again. So so narrowing it down to seven episodes is kind of proving to be a small challenge. But when I say that, I'm not saying that there's not going to be women featured on the podcast from here on out, but I just really wanted this time to really focus in on some women that I think have radically shifted and changed the church for the better. And the second challenge is that being a middle-class white American male, I'm riddled with blind spots. And of course, we're all riddled with blind spots, but the influences these women have had on me is always, they're always going to still be, no matter how influential they are and how deeply I've experienced what they've said or done, is still going to be lacking perspective and understandings that I cannot possibly relate to as a man. So to fix this, to combat it, I'm hoping to bring on some guests through this season and through this special dedication to the women in church history to let them tell you about how their faith, theology, and walk with God have been shaped by these women who have carried Christianity forward. I'm really excited to amplify these voices of women, both dead and alive, Um, and so I'm stoked about it. And, you know, people think, oh, why are you got to dedicate this whole thing to this? And it's, it's because patriarchy is it's still the dominant culture in the world. It's still dominant in, in almost all of the world cultures. Today, women are still not equal. 
And so between patriarchy and our churches and awful attempts at, you know, exegeting scripture, the church, you know, and despite these things, Jesus, the church Jesus formed was radically different than the world. And it brought an understanding that gender did not make anyone superior or inferior to anyone else. In Christ, there is no Jew nor Gentile, no man nor woman. So men and women are equal, and not just equal but different, as so many of our brothers and sisters seem to think. The church would not be where it is today without the prophetic, often rebellious, and sometimes silent but radically faithful work of women. Whether that those women be Mary Magdalene or Junia the Apostle or Priscilla the Pastor or, or Lydia, Melania the Elder, the Desert Mothers, Catherine of Siena, Teresa of Avila, Julian of Norwich, Sojourner Truth, or Dorothy Day, the gospel of Jesus would never have spread to the reaches of the world the way that it has without their faithfulness and their commitment to radical love and works of mercy for the kingdom of God. I owe them. I owe these women, and not only do I owe them, but you owe them. The church owes them. And in many regards, we're not worthy of them. And I hope this Easter season dedication will be a time for you to experience the works and lives of these great women of God. I hope that you will be encouraged, challenged, moved uh, to follow Christ in new and deeper ways, with insights that you had not previously had before. So now that you know what to expect for the remainder of season three, I would I want to take some time to talk about a woman of the faith whose words and life are mysterious and moving. A woman we only know by the name of Julian of Norwich, which is not her actual name. The name we know her by is taken from St. Julian's Church in Norwich, which is where she lived for most of her life, or where we believe she lived for most of her life. She's known to us almost exclusively through her book, The Revelations of Divine Love which is an absolute spiritual classic that you need to check out. Of course, some of the language is archaic, but it is gorgeous. Like, just, it's full of so much beauty. And this book is believed to be the first book written in English by a woman to survive the test of time in history. What little else we do know about Julian comes from the medieval literary work, The Book of Marjorie Kemp. And in that work, we learn that during, during uh, Julian's life, the citizens of Norwich suffered from famine, widespread poverty, um, illness, plague, and Julian became a counselor to the people of Norwich. During this time of suffering and hopelessness, she was a light of hope. Her book, uh, her book, Revelations of the Divine Love, details a series of 16 visions she experienced on what she assumed was her deathbed on May 8, 1373. She said in a vision she saw Christ bleeding and was given insights into how Christ suffers for humanity and how deeply he loves us. She speaks through the book on God's compassion, our ideas of wrath that are, we, we wrongly attribute to God, and frequently explores the love of God by way of metaphors of a loving mother. She even refers to Jesus as mother, which I know for some of you even maybe listening to this could be challenging, but... I encourage you to look into her works. I encourage you to embrace some of her terminology because it is much needed in our culture. This book exists in two versions, one being the original shorter version that she received on what she thought was her deathbed, and the second being an edited and expanded version that she wrote 20 years later um, after surviving that illness, where she expands on what she saw and what she believes God told her, and she expands on those visions and and just elaborates more. 
Um, and given that it is indeed Easter, that Christ is risen, that the tomb is empty, that death has been trampled and hell has been harrowed, I thought that her reflections in chapter 48 of her book would benefit us in light of the work of the cross in the horrors of Good Friday. Now, Julian doesn't seem to be making any clear systematic theology of atonement, but her words in many ways challenge and even combat some of and contradict and blatantly reject these ideas um, of the cross being a place where we see the wrath of God poured out onto Jesus. The wrath was, you know, we, we talk about how the wrath was meant for us and that the wrath was must be satiated so that God could welcome humanity back into a loving relationship with him. But like I said, Julian's ideas of, of God, the God, you know, our God, Jesus, the God who suffers for us, challenges these ideas that God must be appeased like some pagan God, like Moloch or Baal, before he can even look upon sinful and wicked humanity. Julian talks about how there is no wrath in God. And I know immediately that phrase would just set some people over the edge and be like, oh, well, she's just completely denying scripture. But there's some semantic issues involved, right? And there's some, there's some deeper level things going on. And that's why we need people like her to teach us about the love of God. And so her ideas in many ways to me mirror um, the ideas of St. Isaac of Nineveh, which where I love where he insists that God is unjust, and that is the reason that we should worship him, because a just God would not be fit to worship. A God of retribution and a God of wrath is not a God worthy to be loved. But we have a God who is merciful, and for Julian that's the same thing. We have a God who is, who is love and nothing else. So in Julian, in chapter 48, she says something that I found so remarkable. And I read it, I think, for the first time two years ago. And it actually, I, I read just this one line, and it, it, that's what led me to her book, The Revelations of Divine Love. And the line is this. In the very, end, the very last sentence of chapter 48, she says, The mercy and the forgiveness of God exist to quench and lay waste to our wrath. And before we dive in too much, and I get a chance to butcher the beauty Julian, I think, was seeking to express, how about we just read the whole chapter? Right? A whole chapter? I know some of you are just like, what? Right? It's, it's not really that long. Um, the chapters, it's not like a standard chapter in a book. Um, so I just sit down. It's a good one. Buckle up and get ready. Here we go. Revelations of Divine Love, chapter 48. But our good Lord, the Holy Ghost, which is endless life dwelling in our soul, full securely keeps us and works in us a peace and brings it to ease by grace and accords it to God and makes it pliant. And this is the mercy and the way that our Lord continually, continually leads us as long as we be here in this life, which is changeable. For I saw no wrath, but on man's part and that he forgives and that he forgives in us. For wrath is nothing else but a forwardness and a contrariness to peace and love, and either it comes by way of failing of might or by way of failing of wisdom or by way of failing of goodness, which failing is not in God, but is in our part. For we, by sin and wretchedness, have in us a wretched and continual contrariness to peace and to love. For the ground of mercy is love, and the working of mercy is our keeping in love. And this has sh this was shown in such a manner that I could not have perceived of the part of mercy, but as it were alone in love. That is to say, as to my sight, mercy is a sweet, gracious working in love, mingled with the plenty 
plenteous pity. For mercy works in keeping us, and mercy works turning to us all things to good. Mercy, by love, suffers to fail in measure, and in inasmuch as we fail, in so much we fall, and in as much as we fall, in so much we die. For it ne- it needs must be that we die in so much as we fail of the sight and feeling of God that is our life. Our failing is dreadful, our failing is shame our falling is shameful. And our dying is sorrowful, but in all this the sweet eye of pity and love is lifted never off of us, nor the working of mercy ceases. For I beheld the property of mercy, and I beheld the property of grace, which have two manners of working in one love. Mercy is a pitiful property which belongs to the motherhood and tender love, and grace is a worshipful property which belongs to the royal lordship and the same love. Mercy works by... By keeping suffering, keeping suffering, quickening, and healing, and all is tenderness of love. And grace works by raising, rewarding, endlessly overpassing that which our longing and our travail deserve, spreading abroad and showing the high, plentiful generosity of God's royal lordship in his marvelous courtesy. And this is of the abundance of love. For grace works our dreadful failing into plentiful, endless solace. And grace works our, our shameful falling into high, worshipful rising, and grace works our sorrowful dying into holy, blissful life. For I saw full surely that ever as our contrariness works to us here in earth, pain, shame, and sorrow, right so, on the contrary, grace works to us in heaven, solace, worship, and bliss, and all overpassing. And so far forth, that when we come up and receive the sweet reward which grace has worked for us, then we shall thank and bless the Lord, endlessly rejoicing that ever we suffered woe. And that shall, and that shall be for a property of blessed love, that we shall know in God, which we could never have known without woe going before. And when I saw all this, it is fitting to grant that the mercy and the forgiveness of God exist to quench and lay waste to our wrath." And so she, you know, she, she talks in this, you know, she's describing the things she's seeing and the thing, insight she's getting. And early on, she says that there's no wrath in God, but wrath was ours. And like I said, I don't think she's specifically talking about the crucifixion, but I, I think her words are applicable to the crucifixion. They're applicable to Calvary and, and Golgotha, the things we see unfold. And I think when we look at the cross, we don't see God's wrath, but we see ours. To me, in this part of life, through through people like Julian, I see that Calvary is the clearest expression of the mercy of God. That not not in that the cross was a means of divine appeasement, as the song says that we I've sang a million times. For on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. But rather, the cross is a place where the true justice and mercy of God is poured out, so as to quench the wrath and the injustice of humanity. God does not respond to our wickedness, destruction, and injustice with the same, but instead ends the cycle by pouring himself out fully for us in unfailing love and forgiveness, or in pity and grace, as Julian says. We were not and never have been sinners in the hands of of an angry God. In the beaten, mangled, and abused body of Christ on the cross, we do not see an angry, bloodthirsty God, but rather a loving God who willingly allowed himself to fall into the hands of angry sinners to be crucified. And how does God respond? How does he react in the face of brutalization by his own creation? 
he utters like we we learned this last week through the the uh holy week you know holy week meditations father forgive them for they know not what they do is the first words that he he speaks while on the cross that's how he responds to our wrath father forgive them they know not what they do it was not god's wrath towards humanity that needed to be quenched it was not, you know, God didn't have this wrath and this anger for us that needed to be appeased. And so he didn't need to beat Jesus to death and crush Jesus to, to welcome us back into the family. Jesus took on the full force of the worst that we had to offer. He absorbed our wrath. He absorbed our sin into himself and then showing us mercy despite that, despite what we had done. This is love. This is forgiveness. This is mercy. This is God. And that's the God that Julian experienced in her 16 visions that are detailed in, in the revelations of divine love. This is over and over. She, she talks about the wrath of God being you know, non-existent, that it was our wrath. And she talks about how God is so rich in mercy and so rich in love and grace. And I think now we need her words more than ever. We need the words of these women who dared to stare into the face of the dark, cold world and show the world the light and mercy of, a, of God. And so for me, and through people like Julian, um, the idea of God as mother, loving mother, has really taken a hold of me. As someone whose father was not present whose father and my mom and dad split, you know, really early on. I mean, my dad was around. I've seen my dad. I love my dad, but I didn't really have a father figure. My brother, you know, filled that gap as much as he, he could have. And I, I look back and I think of all the ways that I did not really appreciate the work that my mom did. But now I can go back and I look and I see that it, if I would have just paid attention, I would have seen the face of God in my mom. And I see it now, I see it in my wife, how she, how she loves my kids. And it's not to say that a father, father doesn't express some aspect of the love of God, but through people like Julian, my eyes have been opened to this, Jesus is our mother, God our mother, who longs for us. The way that my, my wife longs for my sons, who, who she seeks to protect them. And it's, it's crazy. The depth of a mother's love is, a, is, a, is just a... A scratch of the surface of the love that God has for us. This love that wants to heal and restore. This love that works for our good, all things, even if the world outside of our door is riddled with famine and plague and poverty. It's this love that Julian caught a glimpse of. It's this love that moved her to be who she was. It's this love that, that forced her to write down these words and try to give us a picture of the divine love of God in ways that in her time needed it. In a, in a time, I'm sure, that people thought they were cursed, that they were cut off, that God had, had left them and abandoned them, and she's being a voice that says, no, God is full of mercy and love, and he is going to use every bit of this to show us the depth of his love. Because there's no wrath in God. It doesn't matter how much the people of Norwich have sinned and, and betrayed God, if they even did, that God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. And I think that is the overwhelming message of this chapter and the great majority of this book is that God is faithful. God is love. God is rich in mercy. And so now, in our, our crazy climate of a world, political climate, social climate, our unrest. Yes, and being a, a middle-class white American male, I don't, I don't have poverty, you know, facing, you know, my children or my wife or me, but 
her these words they're they're just as important for me um even without those things because I need to know that God is love and not love but but just love not love and not love but justice not but just love God is love and that's not some hippy dippy baloney to quote um the Lego movie that my son has watched 50 times in the last month. It's not some hippy dippy love that God is just, Oh, everybody's good. But it's this love that, that led God to, to take the worst we had to offer. It's this love that dies instead of kills. It's this love that says, give me the worst you have and I'll give you mercy and I'll give you love back because it's this love that would rather die than take life. And that's the love that Julian talks about. This is the God she talks about. The God of Julian of Norwich is the God of Jesus, the God who's rich in mercy and love. And so I hope that you'll be challenged to read into Julian's life and read about uh, or read the revelations of divine love. Read them. Uh, I'm telling you, if you can just deal with the archaic language, it will just bless your life and it'll, it'll help make you a better person. It'll help make you a better Christ follower, and it'll help you to see God with fresh eyes. So thanks for listening. I'm so excited for the rest of this season. Um, I'm so excited to have some people on that I'm waiting on some emails back, but it's looking like some things are shaping up for some interviews that are going to be awesome, and I cannot wait, and I hope that they'll be just stellar as always. So I shouldn't say always because I'm not quite sure this podcast is stellar, but you know, if you've enjoyed it, I encourage you to share. If you want to subscribe to our newsletter, which is not really a newsletter, it's called Signposts. It's a monthly devotional. If you like to subscribe to that it's in the show notes um no spam promise just you know project updates and that once a month devotional that i hope will help lead you further into this radical love of god that we learned about today from julian of norwich grace and peace to you